and welcome to Systematically, your semi-weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps, speaking to you from my walk-in closet in Austin, Texas. I'm here with Robin Beret. Hi, Robin. Oh, hey. And Ryan Hemmer. Hey, Ryan. Good morning, everybody. And we have a special guest, my old friend, John Brittingham. Hi, John. Hello. Uh, John's here visiting me in Austin, brought his lovely wife and their adorable son with him. And so he has climbed into my sweltering uh, walk-in closet with me to uh, record an episode about some research that he's done in phenomenology and some of the more recent things he's done in decolonial thought. But first, we have a bit of frivolity because we are, uh, all of us here, parents of small children, and we got to chatting about children's television and, and children's movies. And so the question we wanted to put to uh, one another here is, do you have any kind of lingering uh, or nagging mystifications or questions about some work of children's media and programming? Um, and I'm going to throw it to John because he's got one on deck that I think is worth talking mm -hmm. about. So John, what's this nagging question that you have? So Daniel Tiger lives in the land of make-believe. My son loves Daniel Tiger. He will watch... Daniel Tiger all the time and so as a result of watching a lot of Daniel uh, and his friends romp about um, I realized something and that was that the male animals at least in up to say season six five or six the male animals when they are in public never wear pants but all of the female animals do wear some form of covering over their genitalia so the question I have is, why, why does Daniel not wear pants in public? And what complicates this is that when he puts on his pajamas, his pajamas have pants. So he fully covers himself when he's going to go to sleep. But he literally displays his bottom parts proudly, except for his feet. He puts on his sneakers, right? When he's going out in public and his father does the same. Mom? Full nurse outfit. So, hot. Hot. <laughs> gross. <laughs> Robin, you're a gross person. Um, now, there's a recent exception to this. In more recent episodes, we've introduced some new characters. There's a platypus family that moves in, and they have male twins whose names are escaping me right now. What? Teddy? Leo and Teddy. Leo and Teddy. And they Coincidentally, weigh, my nephew's names. Oh, what do you know? Mm -hmm. uh, and they... Are they platypi? Not to my knowledge. Okay. Yeah. Not on first inspection. Good to know. They wear like overalls. Mm -hmm. Also, doesn't Grandpere wear... No. He he wears a, he's got a lovely coat. He wears a yeah. coat. Yeah. He wears a peacoat at the beach. Which okay. Like, but no pants to my no knowledge. No pants. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and I don't just think it's a, a tiger family tradition, right? Because what about yeah. X the Owl? Yeah, both O and, and his uncle wear shoes but never pants. And a bow tie. The, the, da, the uncle wears a bow tie. So it's not like a, it's not mm -hmm. a formal casual <laughs> distinction. But all the humans are fully dressed. This is a side note. I think platypus is like octopus. It's a Greek root and not Latin. So I'm pretty sure it's platypuses or Platypodes. Sure, platypodes. The I really want it to be the latter. Well, octopus. So the 
you can choose octopuses or octopodes. They're both correct pluralizations of octopus. I, I think platypus is the same. Sorry, that's just an aside. No, I should, I should hope so. I mean, mm-hmm. in either case, it's way more interesting than saying platypi. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. platypody. Because it's not, like, <coughs> anyways, there's a bunch of words that are actually from the Greek that were ES and then eventually got changed to US, so then everyone assumes they're a Latin declension, but they're not, so then they, they get pluralized like a Greek. All right, I have a, I have a cognate question. Um in the the neighborhood of make believe, yeah, they have a trolley that they talk to that responds only in dings, but that follows their instructions. And the the quality of the conversation, if you can call it that, is pretty friendly. It's like an R two D two situation here. That's what like... I'm trying to get at. It's like are, are, is trolley some kind of droid, right? Is trolley. Uh, an organic sentience trapped in a machine? Uh, is Trolley just um, like Siri? Like, is this mm-hmm. is this just a, a purely a, an algorithmic uh, imitation of conversational language? I'm, I'm, this is a kind of dang question I have is like, um, if Trolley gets in a terrible wreck and is totaled, do they have a funeral? That's my question. Mm. Or do you just like order a new Trolley from the Trolley Corp? Just like, yeah. Park it, strip it down for parts, you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Trolley has downloaded Trolley's consciousness. Yeah. I guess the question is like, trolley? Do, does yeah. Trolley wear pants or not? <laughs> that would really settle yeah. it. All that would settle is gender. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, one, one of my proudest, well, definitely my proudest moment on Twitter was speculating about Daniel Tiger. And it's and it's sort of relationship to the Star Wars EU and successfully baiting Pablo Hidalgo to weigh in. <laughs> Those of you who aren't nerds, Pablo Hidalgo is the head of the Lucasfilm Story Group. Um, That's so good. Where yeah. did he come down? Uh, you know, he was just mostly being nice while Chris Lilly and I decided to uh, speculate about what an expanded universe of Daniel Tiger might look like. Okay. Um, well, you need- I, I was really taken with the economics of it because it's clearly a planned economy. Like, oh, yeah. they, they never buy anything, so it's you know they're they're not they're not producing based on supply and demand data dictated by yeah. uh, you know monetary exchange. But there is labor. There is labor. Yeah. But like, no, but how it's being bank. directed is uh-huh. uh, is fairly opaque. Like yeah. is that- Friday, like just like sitting in his room, like. Mm-hmm. Saying we're going to make X amount of clocks this this month, Un- uh, unless he is uh, just a symbolic ruler connected to. So, like, it is culturally a very um, a very monarchical hierarchical society, but it is economically and structurally really uh, a, a planned economy. So it's so like they have like, like a high contact. Like, but, yeah. yeah. So it'd be like if Lenin was like, we're going to keep the Romanovs, but just mm-hmm. as figureheads for the uh, yeah, exactly. state. They get to dust the <laughs> paintings and that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Like people like having like some mm-hmm. sort of figurehead, right? The subject of the queen weighs in. <laughs> Don't you say anything bad about Lizzie. <laughs> Quote, unquote. Someone I know, not me personally, but. Um, 
But I mean, I think this is the, the de- like I was thinking about other shows where I have lingering questions and like, you know, in Paw Patrol, it's like, why is there only one female character out of the entire group instead of like half mm-hmm. and half or something? And why does she do nothing? And I was like, on Octonauts, why, why does the captain and like they found an animal that looks exactly like a bearded 60 year old man. I was sorry, a mustached 60 year old man, which I'm not complaining about. Like the Tom Selleck vibe is great, but it's. And then I may think something about Robin today. Yeah. Um, (laughs) And then stranger. And then it's like, why do the men not wear pants on Daniel Tiger, but the women do? And I think, like, Mm -hmm. I mean, every time it just comes down to you know the patriarchy. Well, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So not really a mystery. Now, my lingering mysterious. But you're going to be right pretty often if you guess the patriarchy. Yeah. Yeah. The probabilities are on your side. My lingering question is. Where is the like oxygen tank for the squirrel in SpongeBob SquarePants? Oh yeah, like where is she getting her air that's in her bubble helmet? And maybe there's just water in there, and she can actually breathe underwater. She it's just an affectation that she wears this bubble. Like I really like that actually. Yeah, I like the idea that it's it's uh, it's an appropriation of of um, atmospheric culture. Well, exactly right. Mm. But like she's adapted as a squirrel. I mean, if pineapples, you know, like, you know, if you can, the pineapple doesn't degrade on the ocean floor. There's obviously something different about that kind of ocean environment there. It's actually 5221 in SpongeBob SquarePants and evolution (laughs) has really taken big leaps forward because of all the radiation. Yeah. And I mean, SpongeBob, interestingly enough, and all the men on that show wear pants, just Mm. not shirts. Really makes it yeah. think. <laughs> <laughs> so I have a I have a question. Okay, it's probably only tangentially about you know children's programming and more about the pathology of my own child, but she's really um, fallen hard for this uh, Dino Rock opera on Amazon right now. Mm-hmm. Oh no! Uh, oh, it's it was quite a production. Um, but she, so there's all of these very sympathetic characters that are you're supposed to empathize with. This like orphan baby Triceratops, and she like assembles this ragtag group of uh, sort of uh, loner dinosaurs. And my three year old does not empathize with them at all. She only <laughs> identifies with the Tyrannosaurus Rex and is not interested in the stories of these other dinosaurs. She's only interested in the songs that feature the T-Rex trying to eat them and succeeding in at least one instance. Uh, And she's memorized all the songs. (laughs) I was holding her one night and she had her head on my shoulder and she whispered in my ear, I'm a Tyrannosaurus. (laughs) Ryan, are you the father of a future supervillain? It's possible. I was going to quote that other work of children's programming on Netflix, Mindhunter. Uh, wow. That it's, <laughs> it, you know, it's not that sociopaths don't have inner lives. It's just they don't think anyone else does. Yep. It's well, like, good luck with that. Thanks. Ju- Juliet always. Lock my doors. <laughs> Juliet's very into Cinderella, but when she plays pretend, she always is an evil stepsister. Oh, yeah. That's what she wants to be. And I mean, I get it. Like, they wear dresses too, but they get to be mean and rude and not listen. So it's like they get it all. When you put it that way. 
<laughs> William James missed a basic mm-hmm. personality division of personalities. There's the sick soul and the healthy soul, but there's also like the villain and not the villain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I was gonna say, Ryan, what if your what if your kid's just hungry? That would that would be something new, actually. <laughs> <laughs> like, like, never been hungry before. Empathizes so. with the one that like. <laughs> <laughs> Usually she's she's watching the the Dino Rock opera instead of eating uh, a meal. So, um, yeah, I think it's aspirational. Yeah, could she's be checking out what it would be like to be hungry. Maybe, or maybe you could actually use this and just like be like when you put her dinner in front of you, shape it like little helpless dinosaurs, like shape her little mashed potatoes into like a little like Triceratops yeah. baby, like baby Triceratops, and then tell her that as a T Rex, like. Tyson mm-hmm. Corp has already done this for you in the form yeah. of chicken nuggets. Mm-hmm. She's an only child for the time being, so I don't want to, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. give her more attention than she already yeah. uh, already gets. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's uh, let's turn now to. Um, I wanted to talk to John about his doctoral work, his his, his dissertation, and then um, and then some of the more recent stuff. I know John from, uh, we were in a seminar or so, or whatever, whatever you call it, mm-hmm. uh, a John Salas class at Boston College together. And uh, walking out of this John Salas class, I think it was the Theotetus, right? Something like that. Anyway, yeah, yeah. some Plato stuff. Yeah. Salas was doing his usual overwrought lecture mm-hmm. thing. Um, and I made a DC talk joke in mixed company. And John was the one who laughed at my DC talk joke. And then we were friends after that. Mm-hmm. Now, is that because he's the only one who knew DC talk or he's the only one whose sense of humor is as low as your, like the yes. bar is as low as yours. Yes, so the answer to that. Yes. So that the answer to that alternative is yes. Is yes. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so we've been, we've been buddies a good long time now. Mm-hmm. Um, Over a decade. I realized you stop yeah. it. So uh, I got to watch him work his way through a, a doctoral program at uh, SIU Carbondale. I worked with Tony Steinbach there, and he wrote a, a really interesting dissertation um, about what he calls incarnate experience. Uh, so if you are listening to this, and last week's episode or our previous episode uh, had you really excited that we were going to be taking a more, you might say, theological turn on this podcast, Ooh, uh, he's got jokes, people. <laughs> um, yeah. you are you are in for a rude surprise because it's yeah. we're just going right back to philosophy. That joke belongs in a parentheses in a very long clausal sentence by Jack Caputo. That's correct. Um, oh, I hope Jack's doing okay. I'm sure Jack's fine. I'm sure he's fine. Um, so, hey John. Hey John. <laughs> Let's do that two more times. Uh, what is incarnate experience and why did you write a dissertation about it? Um, in, it in a way, those are two very different sorts of questions. Uh, I'm going to answer the second one first and then get to the, the first one. So the second answer, why did I write a dissertation about it? Um, it was because I had a, I had a professor at Carbondale who gave me some very, very good practical advice. And he said, hey, you're going to be spending probably about four years swimming in this particular pool. 
who do you want your swimming partners to be? What do you want the water to be like? And because at the time I was thinking, oh, I'm going to write something about like Kierkegaard and Derrida. And it's going to be like about sort of deconstructing and faith. And then I also want to tie in like themes of hope. And so start getting into Moltmann. And he was just like, okay, you want a job. That's not going to get you a job. That's going to tell people to not give you a job. Um, also, you're going to get. Are you ways. listening, grad student? <laughs> and he was like, you can do that. That's a great idea for a project after you get a job. That's book two. Book one, think about like, and he was really practical about it. And it was great because then he gave me some questions like, who are the authors that when you have a question, you'll go to and like, well, what do they think about this? Right. And I kept always coming back to to three in grad school, and that was Levinas, Merleau-Ponty, and Paul Ricoeur. And Ricoeur didn't really fit the the idea I had for the project, but Merleau-Ponty and Levinas really did. And so I made a very practical decision and said, hey, what if I wrote about people that I like and actually enjoy reading and enjoy conversing with people who also do that research. What if the dissertation project and process could be something very enjoyable and fun rather than a slog through, you know, all manner of, um, I think the equivalent of like weird Lonergan lectures in phenomenology circles is Husserl's notes. (laughs) <laughs> I just didn't I didn't want to go to Belgium and learn how how to read like Husserl's weird like manuscript notes just didn't want to do that you know there are people who do and that's awesome and I'm sure they eventually become the inspiration for like a TNT adventure show <laughs> but um that's just not me the manuscriptist which is a terrible name for a TV show so I guarantee you it's going to be on CBS next year <laughs> but um but that was why I wrote it I sort of came up with like okay who do I want to read okay I want to read these guys all right uh now how do I have a project that works there and so I was also doing all of this um philosophy of religion stuff I was a part of uh some religiously affiliated philosophy societies uh namely the Wesleyan Philosophical Association and I decided that, hey, I want to do something that intersects with Merleau-Ponty and Levinas and philosophy of religion. And so just sort of stumbled into this this project of talking about incarnation in contemporary philosophy of religion, specifically uh, philosophy of religion in a more sort of European or specifically French-based tradition. Um, so that necessarily meant that I had to engage with uh, Jean-Luc Marion and Michel Henri, um, which somehow I was able to get my dissertation director to allow me to have both of their chapters merge into one chapter. So I didn't have to spend, you know, years of my life translating uh, the then untranslated into English incarnation book by Michel Henri. Um, Yeah. Right after my dissertation came out or was like done, uh, all of these books that were relevant to it came out, which I'm sure anybody Boy, who's written a dissertation, a that's, yeah, you're just like, oh, there's all of this stuff that I should have read for this, but I didn't. Ryan and I yeah. had a buddy at Marquette who 
was writing on three contemporary figures and they kept publishing new books while he was trying to finish his dissertation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the the bullet I dodged there was there were some translations of new or newer Marion books that were coming out and none of them are relevant to what I was doing. And I was like, oh, thank you. Thank you that the only book that is really relevant is the horny book. So I don't have to worry about it. Do you want to give the, the real the, name? The horny book it, uh, is my nickname for the erotic phenomena. <laughs> <laughs> you d- I mean, if you read it, you're not wrong. Um, Google uh, the cover and you'll be, oh, okay. All right, got it. Yeah, and then just be prepared to know a lot about Jean-Luc and what he do. Um, when he doing. When he doing. Yes. Um, so I, I suppose if we wanted to stay current with the lingo it would be the thirsty book yeah that's true <laughs> yeah yeah gotta keep up mm-hmm. so our, a lot of our listenership is, the, is a theological audience right and um you insisted to me repeatedly on our way to record this that you are not a theologian i'm not a theologian yeah um wait are you a theologian now no okay still not a theologian yeah okay so when you use hold up still not okay good you Use the word incarnate. You used incarnation, mm-hmm. and that has a, a pretty distinct meaning in theology. Right, it, it, mm-hmm. it refers to one particular incarnation. Yes. Um, so, how are you using it? How is how in this French phenomenological discussion is it? Um, how is it a how is it a, philo- a philosophical category rather than a theological category here? So this this ties into sort of the main uh impetus for writing the dissertation i did was that i saw this happening that there would be work that claimed to be more or less explicitly philosophy of religion methodologically philosophy and yet would bring in all of these terms from um from religious traditions almost entirely christian almost entirely catholic to the point that the joke going was that, oh, you do Catholic phenomenology, which was the equivalent of saying, oh, you do sort of like European phenomenology of religion, European style phenomenology religion. And so um, I called this problem the problem of doctrinal importation. And, and I said this, I framed it this way because what I had was uh, a bunch of essays where there would be people trying to address these problems related or or at least address phenomena religious phenomena, but did so by always appealing to specific doctrinal terminology like incarnation, like Eucharist, like kenosis, these sorts of things, words that have a history, and they would pay some homage to that history, but they wouldn't really. Uh, unpack it and unpack the methodological distinctions between philosophy and theology. And so they're importing these terms that are then a part of the, the arguments that they're making, but these terms having a history and having a particular context in which they emerge, then start to uh, and this is where I sound really Merleau-Ponty, they start to mutate within the argument and change the argument without the arguer really seeing what's going on there, right? Hence, you end up with what seems to be like a great idea about talking about incarnation, you know, like Jesus was incarnated in, uh, in I think it's um, 
Imagining the Kingdom. It's uh, James K. A. Smith's second second book, and he had like this trilogy that's supposed to be about school, but it's also about everything else. But in that, he's talking about Merleau Ponty, and then he brings in sort of incarnational language, but directly from uh, from a theological context, and doesn't unpack it, and so it ends up undermining and turning some of what he's trying to do away from the the strictures of the argument and i was seeing this everywhere seeing people say oh this is sort of like the transfiguration oh this is sort of like the eucharist oh this is sort of like you know this or the other and i was like whoa whoa, whoa. let's let's slow down and be careful here because the terms that we use are going to do things that we're not necessarily prepared to to unpack and understand if we're not being methodologically careful. And we all remember in the posterior analytics where Aristotle talks about the form of inference. This is sort of like, mm-hmm. which yeah. is everyone's favorite form of inference. Mm-hmm. This is sort of like this word sounds right. like this other word. Yeah. It's yeah. like the entire basis for political memes, actually. Like, <laughs> mm-hmm. This situation is sort of similar to this other heinous situation. Right. So you're a Nazi. Yeah. 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 And so, so for me, it was like, okay, how do I be careful? Because I had all of these professors, John and I shared some of them at, uh, at Boston College when we were there together, uh, who were like really, really smart, really good writers, really good thinkers, but they would do these weird things where they just draw from, in particular, like Catholic doctrine, in large part because they were sort of confessionally Catholic. And then there's not that methodological distinction. There's not being very careful there. And one thing I know that's true about uh, Lonerganians, and one thing I know that's also true about the like hardcore Husserlian phenomenologists is they take method and distinction very seriously. And so I was seeing my colleagues who are Husserlians pulling their hair out because they're like, how can you, how, what, what? Um, which incidentally enough is basically my summary of Jean Nicot's The Theological Turn in French Phenomenology. Stammer, stammer, what? Yeah. <clears throat> and it kind of reads like that a little bit. What? Um, but the second problem was that not only would there be this uh, importing of doctrine and then not unpacking it, but there would be an even more explicit, oh, this sounds like, this reminds me of... And I called that uh, illusory ambiguity. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. So uh, it disregards the differences between phenomenology and theology. And it occurs when religiously minded philosophers employ religious terminology as a means of alluding to the strength or, um, or sort of, for lack of a better term, thickness of a tradition, right? So you can elude... Embodiment sounds like one thing, but incarnation has this sort of allusion to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, to this sort of magisterium and, you know, mystery majesty and authority of, of the Christian church. And it gives the term more of a tradition, more, more sort of, of a foundation, at least in, in terms of being an illusion than, say, just plain embodiment well and uh, and your allusion to dostoevsky there also suggests the way in which it's it is an appeal to authority yeah right um, yeah which 
has a valent one valence in theology yeah. but another valence in philosophy yeah and and you know like there are there are terms that we can use for it now i don't now i don't know that i would call it illusory ambiguity i would say maybe that's a little too nice i would say this is probably a form of what lewis gordon would call bad faith so the lewis gordon version of it of bad faith uh expands on sartre's idea of bad faith right that this is it's an appeal to authority that's not an appeal to authority, right? So it's like watching uh, in the States, it's like watching people who are in charge of like, who are like the secretary of defense, correction, acting secretary of defense, <laughs> acting secretary of the interior, acting, right? And, and there's a certain way that they speak when they're in public because it's not a direct appeal to their glorious leader. It is, a uh it's an indirect appeal and i was seeing this everywhere as well and i'm like okay there's this indirect appeal to religiosity um and the term that my friends and i came up with because we were seeing this not just in uh embodiment stuff but all over the place was we called it magic words you say <laughs> right you say a word and the word is a kind of incantation that's supposed to do all of this work but the magic word like magic ain't real sorry folks magic ain't real and so the word isn't doing the work you you're building an argument the concept names a set of operations a set of behaviors a set of phenomena right it's not necessarily just hey by the way this this form of embodiment we call incarnational Although, I mean, presumably if you're explicitly theological about that, the term does do the work, yeah. right? I mean, like, anyways, can I just clarify? So your complaint is that they're using, like, theological terms with theological weight behind history and, and doctrine behind them, but they're using them in a setting where they're pretending that they're basically pure philosophical terms. Is that the complaint? Um. More that, in a, ma in a manner of speaking, yes. Um, the complaint was largely that they're using these terms in a different methodological context. And in using them in a different methodological context, they're not doing the work to say, this is how this operates within this method. Right. Yep. Yeah. That makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. the, the question I always have about the whole... Uh, theological turn folks the whole the whole cohort is it just it just seems to me at least um on first blush without doing too much reading because i too am writing a dissertation on something totally different um that the the terms that are being taken over from theology and the sort of realities to which those terms refer are like definitionally not phenomena mm -hmm. and so i don't know how you do a phenomenology of them yeah uh, and it, it just seems like it's it's selecting exactly the wrong method to uh to adopt in order to to interrogate uh right i mean how do you realities now religious you experience do, um, story but right but how do you do phenomenology on revelation like you have the same problem or, or even incarnation mm -hmm. yeah so but yeah but that that's part of like what i mean is like anything that comes by revelation instead sure. of like natural law. i mean you have you run into the same problem in phenomenology that you would in just any other sort of like 
philosophical method, which is like, you know, proving God by reason or whatever that you can't, if it's by revelation, kind of by definition, you can't do it. Yeah. Philosophically, right. Yeah. And yeah, exactly. And, and this is where, where it starts, in my opinion, a lot of the discourse around uh, sort of around the theological turn um, gets caught in the weeds is that there is a shift to a kind of hermeneutic philosophy or hermeneutic phenomenology um, that is in large part akin to very, now I'm getting in the weeds, very early Heidegger, pre, um, pre being in time Heidegger. I think this is in like 1921 or 22. He gives uh, a series of lectures called the phenomenology of religious life. And in it, what's really interesting is Heidegger is trying to understand what religious life is like and how you would even do such a thing. And what he does is he says, you have to basically do a kind of anthropology slash hermeneutics as phenomenology. And so what he does is he, he does a hermeneutic interpretation of the lived experience of the Thessalonians in the book of first Thessalonians. And he's doing, so he's trying to draw out what the experience that they were having, what, what their lived experience was based on the interpretation of a text that is also itself contextualized by the history of the tradition of interpretation of it by all of these other sort of empirical understandings and studies that we have about what life in sort of ancient Mediterranean cultures was like what, right? So this is where that anthropological part and the hermeneutic part come in. So there's some people who think that this is like not phenomenology. Arguably Husserl was one of them. Who's like, no, this is wrong. I got to do this now. Well, and that's why, you know, so, so one thing you can do is you can, you can redirect the, the phenomenologist attention to, um, phenomena that are more amenable to the method being deployed mm-hmm. and sort of go, well, look, Hey, look, th- th- you're sort of pointing at the wrong target here. Um, this is just adjacent to the thing you're interested in and it's more amenable to your method. So that's one thing you can do. That's sort of what Heidegger yeah. does. Um, and then the other thing you can do is what the Husserlians do, which is you can fight about um, mm-hmm. methodological questions about evidence, right? Yeah. So you can say, uh, no, 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 you're rejecting this, uh, this target on the basis of a flawed set of methodological presuppositions about what mm-hmm. counts as evidence. Yeah. Um, and so that's where the fight ends up a lot. I mean, that's yeah. the stuff where, where um, Tony Steinbach's work is so good. Mm-hmm. He doesn't sort of go right at the theological turn stuff, but he, his books are sort of again and again about this question of what really is evidence in, in phenomenology. Yeah. So he has a book called um, Phenomenology and Mysticism, which was that was the book that more or less got me to go to Carbondale and work with him was I read this book when I was at BC and I'm going, Oh, this is, this is it. Like, this is what I want to do. This type of phenomenology. And originally that book was him just going on, as John said about evidence and people are like, Hey, nobody, nobody's going to read a book just called phenomenal phenomenological evidence. What is it? So, he ends up doing some more, some, some more religious studies type work um, 
examining the ways that certain famous figures in the three sort of Abrahamic religions, um, how mystics, three mystics from those traditions experienced the divine or experienced the holy and, and, and doing something on the one hand, similar to Heidegger, but on the other hand, having done all of this methodological work beforehand in order to get to a place where he can talk about how the phenomena that they are experiencing gives itself. And, and that's really where sort of I, I picked up on and ran with um, was Tony's insight that these religious phenomena that we might call them give themselves differently than like a chair gives itself, which is, which is an insight that is just built off of what Husserl and Merleau-Ponty and others were, were talking about that there are different modes of givenness, right? Different modes that things appear to us or, or different modes in which they appear to us. And, and that if we're being attentive to it, right, the experience of eating, eating a meal, say at the, you know, as the Eucharist is different than the experience of chomping on a hamburger, um, you know, disregarding the, or at least to be a good phenomenologist, bracketing the uh, church youth group tradition of hamburger and, and a Mountain Dew as your communion after winter retreat or something like that. But it's what you call invalid matter. <laughs> um, okay. So, so you are sort of following Tony's lead. Mm-hmm on these, uh, in terms of your approach. So where does it take you? And I, I I do, I kind of want to, um, jump right to the point of sort of what, what, uh, where did you, where did you land on this stuff? Cause I want to talk about your more recent work also while we have time. So where I land on it is, um, I, I, first of all, agree with Tony in that if we are following this phenomenological, uh, trajectory and going down the rabbit hole that then we need to pay attention to, the very specific ways that religious phenomena of various kinds can give themselves all the while being mindful of the the pitfalls that come along with that. And the pitfalls are going to become more important uh, as my, as I talk about what I'm doing now. Um, But like the results of the, of, of what I was studying in the dissertation um, I called a prolegomena to doing this kind of work sort of like if you're going to do this work here are like four things you have to keep in mind right and the first is that um i said incarnate experience is an absolute experience and it's absolute in the sense that it's given in an unconditional manner and absolved of the strictures of presentational givenness like this is a fancy boy way of saying it doesn't give itself like a chair or a table gives itself, right? You have to attend to the phenomena differently because it gives itself differently. Um, And the second is that incarnate experience is asymmetrical and irreversible. And this is where uh, Levinas really comes in. Um, As a side note, but relevant side note, one of the things that has fascinated me is that later work on Emmanuel Levinas has not to my knowledge taken up just how central the body is to his thought so otherwise than being in beyond essence his second major work the 
the majority of it is wrestling with questions of incarnation and the body of the other. And he uses the language of incarnation and it's, it's not in the secondary literature that this is a major theme. That, that's why like the parental relationship, right? Like mother, child and father and, and then kind of father, yeah. child becomes so like, is so central to his yeah encounter with the other stuff and and yeah. he starts talking about the mother child because he basically starts with like the whole womb and gestation yeah. thing right yeah 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 and and a lot of the he takes a lot of the critiques in between the writing of the two books i i think he takes a lot of the critiques into account and you get very otherwise in being is a very different book in many respects than totality and infinity and and that really made me go, all right, this is something that I need to that I need to incorporate because Levinas is doing something that is extremely relevant to to this to to this phenomenological approach to religious um phenomena. Right. And so anyway, side note over. Uh incarnate experience is asymmetrical and irreversible. What I mean by this is uh that flesh is given in a passive rather than active way, right? Our bodies are given in a passive rather than active way. Uh, even Merleau-Ponty describes the self as given to itself and given as a mystery. And so this passivity then um, is related to um, what, what some call phenomenological affection. So when we consider incarnate experience, an absolute experience, it's one that can't be invoked right i can't just say all right i'm gonna have an incarnate experience now right um i don't experience myself as an incarnate being by doing particular rituals or activities as though i could conjure up an incarnate experience right instead i am given to myself through my encounter with the other person such that uh or in such a manner that my categorical tendencies, uh, my categorizing tendencies, my attempt to understand uh, the world and, and have a relationship to the world and to the other person through knowledge is ruptured and thrown back on itself, right? So this is then a self that is open and exposed to the other person and to the holy. Um, thirdly, incarnate experience is excessive. So it's... Um, uh, to to borrow from Derrida, the other every other is every bit other. So it's uh, this incarnate experience is very, at least as far as the dissertation is concerned, is very uh, very much an overflowing uh, of meaning and sense, uh, rather than something that is you know within the framework of categorization. And uh, fourth and finally, I said that incarnate experience is given as canonic or self-disposing uh, through the encounter with the other person or with the holy, the self is given to itself in such a manner that it cannot rightly take itself as self-grounding. Uh, this is sort of like quietly a very Kierkegaardian uh, point that, you know, I am not the power that posited me. Um, and as a result, uh, my experience of myself is one that recognizes that I am not the spirit that gave me rise, as another translation 
says. So the other person, then my encounter with the other person calls me to humble service to dispose my activities of comprehension and active self-formation for the sake of caring for those in need. And that's basically where the dissertation kind of led me was thinking about if you're going to do the phenomenological investigation style study of what is uh, what is religious experience within the context of the body, what is the body within the context of religious experience, um, what what you have to keep in mind. Um, well, yeah. and and part of what's interesting to me about that is that um, the that framework would make um, speaking philosophically about the, the the theological notion of incarnation like almost impossible, right? Because the the distinction I mean, to use the the, the traditional um, Hellenistic language, right? To, to speak of a distinction of natures um, of, of a, a, a human modality of alterity and a divine mo, uh, modality of alterity in Christ as being distinct from each other, you just have no basis for that, right? If they're, if they're, yeah. if they're, a, if they're a unity, right? If they're a hypostatic yeah. unity, phenomenologically, like how could you make that dual affirmation? Yeah, I mean, and that's that's where it gets really really tricky. Um, I wrote so the I think the first paper I wrote after I had completed the dis- dissertation was was more or less saying, "Hey, people who want to do Merleau-Ponty and like religious experience, you don't get to have the doctrine of the incarnation. You don't get to have like straight up Christian theology." an embodiment in this Merleau-Pontian way or even in this Levinasian way because uh, for for both of those figures, but especially for Merleau-Ponty, to be open to this type of phenomena means we have to hold aside some of those more uh, more intricate and nuanced uh, and mysterious uh phenomena such as the incarnation of jesus and so you end up with like you have to be open to animism as well right yeah yeah that's interesting sorry i've noticed though that you've still like you're still using the language of incarnate instead of just Mm -hmm. dropping and using embodied although in your own work it like although in your conversation it almost seems like you're using incarnate like incarnate and embodied as like you know, just in interchanging. Yeah. Like when you're talking about say, what is then incarnate experience? Um, are you specifically adverting to then doctrinal incarnation? And if you're not, when you import that language of incarnation, how do you avoid basically that same appeal to authority that the French phenomenologists yeah. are using? Yeah. Um, the, the easy answer to that is um, Merleau-Ponty, Michel Henry, and Levinas all use this term incarnation in their later work as, as a way that phenomena give themselves differently than within the presentational mode of givenness that uh, 
earlier works connected to embodiment uh, sort of layout. So another way of putting that is that the figures I'm using change the term, and I think I change with them. The other, the other part of that is um, in sort of a weird, weird, this is a weird kind of answer to the question is uh, this is like, like this is work from five years ago. And so me caring about that distinction is low on the priority list for me in terms of like, like being very specific about, oh, no, this is embodiment and this is, uh, this is incarnation. But I, I definitely think that you highlight one of the difficulties there, which is that the ambiguity and the appeal to authority without, without context is definitely like that is, that's a critique that it's open to. Um, but I think the it, it's, it's qualified by there are terminological concerns on the side of philosophy too. Um, so to speak of embodiment uh, is similarly ambiguous because my coffee mug and me both have a body, but the coffee mug doesn't have flesh and I do. And I mean flesh here in, in Merleau-Ponty's sense of mm -hmm. flesh. Um, and so to speak of, and you could do sort of awkward neologisms, right? And speak of enfleshed experience if mm -hmm. you want, right? Or enfleshment or, in, in, you know, mm -hmm. infleshional or whatever. Yeah. Um, but incarnate works. Um, and if what you're trying to do is uh, what John is doing in terms of his critique, is say, um, look, if you want to speak about incarnate experience very well, but you have to introduce these methodological controls to make it really clear out front, right, which is why this is a prolegomena, mm -hmm. that I'm using this word not in a sense that just in, is sort of trying to borrow yeah. the authority of the religious yeah. doctrine, which is why I made the comment about it actually makes the, Chal the Chalcedonian affirmation of the doctrine almost impossible. Um, yeah. Not, not impossible in the sense of it couldn't be affirmed as true, but it, it, you could not make the affirmation on the basis of the philosophical categories. It's an affirmation. One of the ways that I think about it as a phenomenologist is those types of affirmations are held up within the, uh, within the bracketing of what is suspended when you attend to the phenomena. Um, and that's where it begins to get really tricky because then you say, okay, well, if I'm trying to describe religious phenomena, right, or uh, or experiences of the holy or anything of that nature, um, what stays in the bracket, right? What is suspended and what can't be suspended in order right. for so me to you're, do you're, that? You're both you're both bracketing the natural attitude and also the, the theological attitude. Or yeah, something. yeah. And what becomes difficult there is that if we look at the way that people live their lives it is really difficult to see that that um that religious beliefs are just that or just sort of like beliefs that we assent to they are also practices that we engage in right our lived experience is shaped by and shapes the way that we encounter the eucharist or baptism or the, or or how we interact with one another in a way that can't be discounted right so if i think about the way that i interact with my lovely midwestern evangelical colleagues at, at my tiny jesus school um i can't if i'm thinking as a phenomenologist i can't dismiss that they might really 
really hold certain interpretations of certain Bible verses to be central to their life and dictate how they act with one another. Right. So, so this is taking a weird improvisational turn, but God's the, uh, but so the, the vice president of the United States, Mike Pence sort of infamously has this whole thing about not being in a room with a woman alone or going to lunch with her alone for, you know, reasons. The Billy Graham rule. Yeah, the Billy Graham rule, right? Unless As mother a, is present. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, uh, and what's weird is that mother is just Mike Pence in a wig and a rocking chair. <laughs> but. Um, Don't shower at the Pence house is what he's saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but if I am examining sort of the way that he lives out his life from a phenomenological standpoint, I have to take seriously that this belief, this religious belief, this interpretation of uh, a set of ideas or whatnot is essential to how he acts in the world. And so that's where it becomes really, really tricky because what, what doctrines, what, religious practices what beliefs stay in in the reduction and what what do we take seriously and i and that that kind of ambiguity is what led me methodologically out from doing straight up philosophy of religion and more into a more into like a decolonial uh, approach yeah let's talk about that so um you you have largely left this this work behind yeah um and and actually i, I don't think I, I have some notion of bio, biographical reasons why you've pivoted to the to decolonial stuff mm-hmm. but um i don't know that you and i have ever talked about the sort of uh scholarly steps that uh intervened between the two um yeah how, how did you i mean you can mention the biographical stuff too if mm-hmm. you want but 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 i'm, yeah. I'm curious in particular about sort of what were the what were the scholarly uh pave stones yeah. along the way so there's the there's the short answer for both and there's the long answer for both and what do you want um i don't know let's get going and, and i'll intervene if we're running out of time it looks like robin has a question though no, no, a question? oh okay um so for the bio the biographical reasons biological reasons also um, that yeah are, are fairly straightforward in that um, I came out of my graduate education, uh, PhD in hand, and paused and realized that throughout the entirety of my time in higher ed, I had only ever had one or two people of color who were my professors. Two. And I also realized that that was not an aberration for the discipline. If anything, that was really good for the discipline. And that really bothered me because biographically, I come from a big Puerto Rican family. And so I'm surrounded by people who do not like I am the I am the I am the white one in my family the majority of my extended family are uh, 
various various forms of Afro-Latino, um, Asian Latino, um, et cetera, right? So it's a very, very big Puerto Rican family. It's a New Yorkian family for those who find those distinctions important. Um, and and I looked at my my education. I said, "There's a problem here because I, as a as a person who identifies as Puerto Rican, don't know any Puerto Rican philosophers. That's a problem." I should know that. And the second question I asked was, why do all of my teachers not look like my students? Because the majority of my students are not, you know, white dudes who love, you know, getting into the, getting into the weeds of Greek metaphysics or whatnot, right? A lot of my students have very different life experiences. And if, as a phenomenologist, I'm trying to attend to the lived experiences of others, and if, as somebody who finds Levinas at least a little bit compelling, I need to attend to them as who they are, not as who I want them to be or who I categorize them to be, then I have work that I need to do as a teacher and as a philosopher and as a thinker because I've been so shaped by a European tradition that perpetuates sort of perpetuates uh, perpetuates itself in such a way that like there was nothing compelling coming out of my graduate education, nothing compelling me to to shift to talking about questions of race and ethnicity and nationality and identity in those ways. I could have kept going with this, you know, this sort of. Um, phenomenology of religious incarnation etc and it and and there's no like no one going oh man this a little this is, this is a little too french huh right there's there is nothing because the environment is such that that these these traditions perpetuate themselves now i wrote this dissertation like six years ago past it like what five years ago yeah, so this is going back for me because, um, because the journey then scholarly or sort of scholar wise and pedagogically was okay. So I need to know who the who the big Puerto Rican philosophers are, and I need to know why why I think in this particular Eurocentric register, and how do I think beyond that. And so it was simply a matter of go, okay, let's go to, let's go to Amazon and look up Latin American philosophy. Oh, Hey, here's a cool book. Get this book, read it. All of a sudden I've got a huge bibliography that I've got to read through. And so that's really where that started on, on the research end, on the pedagogical end. It was, I really value thought and I really value thinking through these problems and these questions. How do I, how do I reframe my discipline so that it is relevant and helpful to students whose lives are fundamentally different than the majority of the audiences these books are written for? And that was itself its own, its own kind of journey. And so the, the, it's sort of twofold. There's the scholarly one and there's the pedagogical one. Not that those are entirely separate, but just that the formation there uh, runs in tandem. So then, so then which, uh, within the sort of the new horizon that you were opening up for yourself, 
which particular problematics and questions have become the salient ones for you? Um, the, the big question, well, the big thing that was helpful was reading, uh, reading figures like, um, Nelson Maldonado Torres and, uh, Enrique Dussel and, um, Maria Lugones and, uh, Linda Martin Halkoff who were, who were using colonization and this term that they get from a sociologist, Anibal Quijano, um, called coloniality. So how does the operation of colonization shift into an epistemic, political, and cultural apparatus that maintains people in a position of uh, servitude or oppression? Right? And that here comes a framework, this, uh, the analytic of coloniality, that helps explain some of those very basic questions, like why don't I know who the most uh, famous or influential Puerto Rican philosopher is, right? Uh, why, don't, why did I only have one or two people of color in my entire higher education career, right? And, that, and, and that's my, my experience. Other people have very, very different experiences, not universalizing that, but I'm saying for my particular um, biographical uh, trajectory, those questions became relevant and I could see, oh, hey, there's certain knowledge that is legitimized and delegitimized because of who says it and how they say it and who they say it to. And if I am being attentive to those things, if I am being a good phenomenologist, I am going to have to attend to the ways that certain forms of knowledge, certain forms of, uh, of thinking, and certain kinds of philosophy that are arising out of the Americas, even while they are being colonized, are not only of value, but are essential parts of understanding how peoples from a variety of um, from a variety of contexts live their lives, uh, and and why why the sort of the situation of well, let me pause. Um, why European thought was presumed to be universal but everything else is contextual. And, and I think realistically that my, my friends in theology were onto this a lot sooner than philosophy has been, right? Because you get into the question of like contextual theology, right? So why is it that like James Cone is a contextual theologian, but you know, St. Thomas isn't right. St. Thomas context is Europe in the, in, you know, like the middle ages. Like, and it's, and it's, uh, in, it's like, overtly intercultural and migration patterns are hugely influential influential important to it exactly and, yeah. exactly or like right. why isn't anselm a contextual theologian who took like a very like idiosyncratic mm-hmm. yeah. british well not i mean kind of pre-british justice system and mapped an entire theory of atonement using it which like makes total sense if you were like yeah. um, an anglo you know an anglo-saxon in that mm-hmm. period but why is that a universal not a contextual yeah exactly yeah category and so that was like really helpful for me because then i got to 
I, I began to think about it in terms of like, okay, this is a conceptual framework that allows me not only to do research, but also helps me with how I teach because it's shifted how I teach my classes um, rather than, oh, hey, everybody, here's normal philosophy and then here's our special like diversity philosophy right? Which is one of the ways that we go about it, right? Hey, everybody, here's your normal education. And then here's your, uh, your cultural, like your cross-cultural experience, or here's your uh, global foundations experience, right? And you have to have that because it's important, but also it's tacked on at the end or in weird ways. It's not integrated throughout. Um, and we understand, and so understanding that the forms of uh, of knowledge and the traditions that I work in are fundamentally provincial is really helpful because you get to say, okay, within the context of say Paris of the 1950s and 60s, this type of phenomenology is really, really influential and important, but it's looking at particular things. And it's also not paying attention to the way that France's history of colonization played into the very development of its intellectual culture because it's not paying attention to one of the great thinkers to come out of that French colonial structure, namely France Fanon. So like Fanon has become a figure that I read a lot of in part because he is situated in a really interesting place within the context of France as colonial power, but intellectual powerhouse on the global stage and the, uh, and the Caribbean context um, that, that Fanon sort of lives out of. So it becomes this really interesting thing where we're playing back and forth between like, Oh, I like Merleau-Ponty, but also like, here's some problems with Merleau-Ponty and here's where he's really provincial and I need to like do this other, this other work. Uh, and that's like that's where I am like now. That was literally the paper I gave at the um, Caribbean Philosophical Association about a month ago. Was moving moving this question of embodiment to what it, what does embodiment look like if we provincialize European accounts of embodiment or incarnation? Choose your word, right? Uh, and uh, and what if? And so, how do we think about this? in the context of non-European thought, particularly the Caribbean, particularly the, um, I would say like Latin Caribbean, um, which is my, that's sort of like my, my main area of focus um, now, but yeah. That's terrific, thanks. And I'll, uh, I'll bug you later to put together a little um, bibliography of maybe good entry points. Oh, for absolutely. Folks, and I'll put it in the, in the show notes yeah um all right guys i think that's going to be our show um because it's so hot in this closet right now it's real hot it's pretty warm uh so thanks john that was really terrific that was super interesting um and thanks for sharing some of the sort of story of that transition it's um i think helpful for people to hear sort of especially graduate students and stuff listening yeah. to hear that there is life after you defend your dissertation there's intellectual life after you finish your dissertation yeah and you're also not like frankly you're not tied to what you wrote your dissertation on you can take a sharp turn away from that and you're gonna be okay you know 
and you may get to the end of it and really want to. Yeah. But I mean, the other thing too is graduate education is really tough. And sometimes the best thing to do is to think about it very practically. Here's a project that will take me three years to complete versus here's a project that will take me six years to complete. And maybe, maybe you, like you consider that heavily because, you know, I was able to do stuff and this is just my experience. I was able to do stuff that was really fun and enjoyable, but also like it stemmed from doing practical work. Yeah. Yeah. But thank you for having a non-theologian. <laughs> our pleasure. Right in our wheelhouse, frankly. Uh, any last things, Robin or Ryan, before I talk us out of this business? All right. Um, so you can find us on Twitter at systematic pod. You can send us an email systematically podcast at gmail.com. If you want to help support the show, help us pay for hosting and whatnot, you can go to patreon.com slash systematically. Uh, all of these things are wonderful and we would love to hear from you. Uh, our intro and outro music as always is track 14 off of ghost two by nine inch nails. And, uh, in deference to phenomenology, go out there this week and be attentive. Adios.